Bang. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of spoilers special podcasts. This one is dedicated to Queen and Slim. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> better this time, right? <laughs> yeah, that was good. good. That was good. I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> it is, of course, uh, Melina Mansukas's fantastic. How would you describe a road trip movie? But you know, with a with a with a you know, people listening to this have heard the movie. They know how it ends, but with a with a tragic twist. Yeah, there we go. She say that. Uh, and joining me to discuss this movie over the next forty five minutes or so are well, our geek queen, mm-hmm. Helen O'Hara. Hello, and our geek slim. <laughs> I'm on Warman. I like that. AKA the best dressed man in podcasts. I'm slightly worried about what's going to happen at the end of the podcast. <laughs> I'm totally fine. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, we know. I'm the one, no spoilers. Oh, wait, spoiler special podcast. I'm the one that grasses you guys up. Uh, <laughs> Let, you suck. <laughs> that is me. I'm on. It's a very fetching jumper again today. Well, I'm still wearing the. Uh, the Knives Out sweater, the Freddy Krueger away <laughs> kit, uh, but you have gone for something. It's a little bit Sardoz, it's a little bit Flash Gordon-y, it's a little bit sci-fi. Where is it from, H&M? <laughs> I believe this one... How dare you, H&M? I would never... never... H&M. Never. I believe this was a Christmas gift from River Island. Ooh, he's fancy, <laughs> yo. River Island. Yeah. The poor man's H&M. <laughs> I'm going to take you clothes shopping one day, Chris. I'm going to update that wardrobe. I'll take you clothes shopping. Fly. Oh, How about that? I, 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 How about that? Have you ever I'm been to... I'm pretty sure I'm doing something whenever you <laughs> ask me. Uh, when, when are you free? When are you free? Free... Um, next week. Let's go next week. It's a date. It's a demand date. Until um, I make sure I have something else <laughs> on that date, for sure. Have you ever been to Berton Menswear? On occasion. <laughs> What's wrong with you both? <laughs> Nor if I haven't. <laughs> Have you ever been to Two by Sainsbury's? George by Asda. We're going we're gonna to kit you up. Anyway. Anyway, back to the spoiler special. People are going, I, listen, when you went behind the paywall, I thought we'd be getting some quality conversation. No, it's me talking about Amon's jumpers, basically. Same as it ever was, right. meet the new boss, same right. as the old boss. Who's not to say that this isn't quality content? I this do. is quality content. Yeah, low quality. <laughs> All right, Helen, I feel like I've been, I've been discriminatory in some way. How, where did you get this, whatever this is? I, uh, old Navy, I think, actually, in a mm. foreign country called America. Really old Navy, if you ask me. <laughs> so you're coming a mile off. No, it's very nice. It's very nice. Thanks, it's, Chris. Uh, it's a black and white <laughs> striped. It's a Breton top. Well, Like this kind of top is, is a sailor, is Breton top. Just saying. Anyway, we will be getting into <laughs> Queen and Slim. Uh, in One day. Spoilerific detail. One of these days, we'll be getting into Queen and Slim, uh, which is a fantastic film. Hence, it is receiving the spoiler special treatment. But before you hear from us three giggling idiots, we'll be tackling some of your questions. We'll be discussing the film ourselves as well. Let's hear from the ladies behind the movie, the writer, Lena Waithe, and the director, Melina Matsukas. And I'm on here. Went along to speak to them. When was it? Last week? Week before? Something like that? The week before, I believe. The yeah. week before. Wayne, I'd like to speak to them. This is only your second podcast interview out in the field. So we think it went well. We think you pressed record. 
if I you believe didn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> Second and last podcast interview. Yeah, I haven't heard I haven't heard the interview back yet, but uh, you discuss all sorts of stuff, right? All sorts of spoilerific stuff. And again, we should say, and if you're listening to this, you know you'll have seen the film and you know what's happening with these things. But in case you haven't somehow seen Queen and Slim and you have stumbled upon this podcast, then go ye no further because spoilers lurk at every corner behind every hydrant. <laughs> there, is a, there is a spoiler. Um, and we'll be discussing Third Act Revelations, Major Deaths, Twists and Turns, the whole kitten caboodle uh, with Melina and Lena. And you can hear that right now. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast with, uh, by Melina Matsukas, the director of Queen and Slim, and Lena Waithwaita of Queen and Slim. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, as, <laughs> as this is a spoiler special, I thought I'd jump right into the ending because every time I've spoken to a person about the film, the first thing that comes out of their mind is, why did they have to die? Um, and I know, Lena, you came up with uh, this ending sort of quite early. Um, what made you want to end the film in, in that way and Melina what was your reaction to reading that script for the first time well I think it's actually a very odd question to be honest with you about why did they have to die because the whole statement I was trying to make with the film is that black people are being killed by police officers in alarming I believe alarming numbers it's an epidemic yeah and so um I think people are aware of that, obviously, because we keep seeing the names and it continues to be a problem. But usually it's the job of the artist to to reflect the times. And it would have been, I think, irresponsible of me to write a fairy tale about what it means to be black in 2020, what it means to be black just, I think, in our generation. And, um, and I get the idea of wanting for us to win, but the truth is, whenever anyone asks why the Queen of Slim have to die, I say you should ask why the Emmett Till have to die, why the Mike Brown have to die, why the Trayvon Martin have to die, why the Sandra Bland have to die, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, they die because their skin has been politicized by the country in which they were born into. Um, those are the only reasons why they <laughs> were killed. I, I, there's no real explanation for any of these, these killings. So I, we know why they died. And um, and I think it's just important that we acknowledge that in our country is that the fact that someone could be killed simply for the fact that they are born black. Yeah, I mean, that's why I gravitated to the film, you know, like the way Lena writes is so honest. It's, in, it's the same way that I create. Uh, we want to reflect the times. We want to create something that is authentic, that's real, that makes you think, that creates this dialogue. You know, even the question itself is like, that's the purpose, right? Mm -hmm. um, why do we have to die? Why is that choice taken from me, right. from us? Um, Lena did write the ending, and actually the first draft was it ended a little differently, where mm -hmm. they were running towards the cops, and I remember it challenging. No, they were her. running away from the oh, cops, right. right? And. I remember challenging her and being like, I, I, they have to die, obviously, but like, let's complicate this. And, you know, I'm always good with coming up with critiques and no solutions. And Lena's great at translating <laughs> my needs. And I remember she went away and came back with this draft. And when I read it, I cried and I knew it was the right choice. Um, I knew when, when Queen gets killed by a white female cop first mm -hmm. in the middle of her dialogue, 
and that choice is so quickly taken away from us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that was it. It was like black people don't get to choose. We don't get to choose if we're going to run towards that plane, if we're going to go out in a hail of bullets. Mm-hmm. Um, it reflects how our experiences are, and, and that felt true to Queen and Slim and true to our artistry as, as filmmakers. Yeah. The the idea of a double bill with Get Out is very interesting to me because it's like with well, the end is you got the fantasy with Get Out and the reality with this movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm guessing. But funny enough, there was Jordan changed his ending because of a test screening. Mm-hmm. Initially, uh, Daniel's character went to jail. I, be, I believe that's on a like a, a, it's on, it's on, a, it's a DVD or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah so people can go well, look at it. That's why I saw it. I just saw it. Remember, I sent it to you. Oh yeah, you did. You watched it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was his original ending. That mm-hmm. obviously he wrote that, and that's how he shot it. And then they tested it for audiences, which you know often that every movie goes through. You have to be tested so, so you can hear what the audience has to say. And they all said they were that they, they thought the ending was very depressing, and so he reshot the ending, and that's what ultimately played in theaters. And for me, I heard that I, like I heard it the night I saw the movie at a, t- at a like sort of a tastemaker screening, and I remember thinking because obviously I love the movie, but then when I heard that, I thought to myself, "Wow, the original ending would have been like such a very interesting experience. It would have been complex. It would have left me. Yeah, I wouldn't have left the theater in the same way I left it. You know, with the new ending, but to me, it would have been just as impactful, and maybe even more so, really to speak to the realities of what happens when." the police pull up and there's a dead white girl and a black man standing there. You know, we know what the history of that is, mm-hmm. <laughs> what that looks like. So look, I, I I applaud both of those endings and somebody could like, we didn't do this, but somebody could have like shot some ending where they get on the plane and go. And so it was almost like, you know, build a bear when you watch the movie. But to me, I think it's very interesting about where, where not just where black artists are, but what where black audiences are. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, is that I do think black audiences or black the black community definitely feels more empowered now because everybody has a microphone with Twitter and Instagram and Facebook everybody has an opinion and I think that that's absolutely okay and welcomed but I do think that as a black artist we do have to be careful because if the if the audience is always leading us if we're always listening to the masses about what to do then I think that we will never really we'll get away from having great art because mm-hmm. I think that great artists challenge us great artists show us ourselves even the parts that we don't like looking at um, I, I can't imagine Baldwin sort of asking people well how do you want me to tell this story how do you want me to end this novel it's not up to them you know he did the he took the hard path of being vulnerable and jumping to the lion's den trying to make a career as a as a writer <laughs> and trying to tell our stories um, I just don't think we can let the audiences or should let audiences dictate how we make art because if we do that then both parties will suffer artists won't have that freedom to tell stories where they, they see fit or to do right to, to paint paintings where they see fit to write novels where they, to write plays you know I think about Jeremy O'Harris with slave play I mean I know that's very very controversial um, and something this can be polarizing but I believe in its right to exist whether you love it or hate Absolutely. it it doesn't matter it's like we as artists have to to we have to light a fire in society that is our job so it does bother me sometimes about how sometimes artists are affected by it. and I can see it if you I think when we look back at this time you will see certain artists that are literally making art to make their audience happy and that is valid but I find that to be boring 
Like I want artists to do things that make me uncomfortable, that make me squirm in my seat, and that make me think about things in a way I haven't before. Those are the artists that I remember and I think about that have left an impact on me. Because I definitely don't think Spike Lee cared what anybody thought when he made do the right thing. If he did, we wouldn't have that film. And that film changed my life and the lives of other artists after him. John Singleton has said that do the right thing inspired him to go write Boys in the Hood. So if that had been a safe movie to make black people feel comfortable or the, or society at large feel comfortable about, about where we were with race relations, then I just think that, and also and we use that clip in, in, in the Thanksgiving episode. That's how impactful that movie has been. And it is not safe at all. It is literally a stream of consciousness about where things were then, which is also very reflective of where things are now. Mm -hmm. So I just get a little tricky when with, with test audiences when sometimes Twitter sometimes say, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. I don't care. Mm -hmm. It is, I chose this path to be an artist. If you want to go make art, by all means, because it's not an easy path. It's very difficult. That's why only a handful of people actually do it, because it's hard to put your soul on celluloid and show it to people. That's, so my thing is like, don't tell us how to make art. Go make your own. Absolutely. Was it always meant to be a black dude that gives them up at the end? No. Initially, it was supposed to be a white guy. Um, and I think that would have been very simple and very easy. And so we got a note from Bradford Young. Yeah, I shared it with, um, as I like to do, with my trusted friends who mm -hmm. I respect their artistry. And he gave me a couple a couple notes, and I didn't take the other ones, but <laughs> that one I thought was really valid. I thought it complicated uh, the, our film. I thought it complicated that relationship. I brought it back to Lena. She agreed. Mm -hmm. She, again, went away and translated that into the black male character that gives them up. I think it also speaks about um, systematic racism within our community, you know, how sometimes we choose a dollar over our brother. Mm -hmm. um, it speaks to capitalism. And again, it being about the individual, being about the individual over the community, um, and us being victims of, of that. And him, you know, breaking his camaraderie with the movement in order for his own gains. You know, there's, it also brings back, uh, Marlon James wrote this book mm -hmm. called A Brief History of Seven Killings, and, and he has this quote that's still one of my favorites. Uh, where he talks about the people in Kingston at the time and, and the young people, they're being so poor, they can't afford shame, mm -hmm. right? It's like at that moment, you're just trying to survive uh, because you're impoverished, uh, you know, and that breeds crime. It breeds people going after their own individual gains. And that's what happened here. And I, I think it's complicated. It's not, it's not black and white, you know, mm -hmm. like that's what colonization has done to our community. And that's what we're trying to talk about in the film. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm not afraid to say that, you know, we as a community, as a black community, we are still suffering from the, the, the terror of slavery, mm -hmm. you know, and that, and the trauma of it, you know, the fact that we were pit against each other, you know, whether it be by skin color, hair texture, you know, you work in the field, I work in the house, like that is really still on our skin. And I think it's, it's and it's so interesting too, it's like because sometimes, you know, my harshest critics are my own community. You know, mm -hmm. they'll come at me about my personal life, about what mm -hmm. I choose to do with whatever. It's like, but I still love them. You know, I don't care. It's like, like I say, I love black people unconditionally. And and even though what the what that character does in the movie, my thing is I don't look at him as a villain. You know, I look at him as Molina always says so eloquently, is he is a victim of his circumstances. 
he's not someone that's like, I think, you know, no one is born to be a monster. He is a person that is poor. He is a person that, you know, doesn't always know, I think, where his next meal is coming from. And when he looks at Queen of Slim, he doesn't see them as these two warriors. He sees them as a meal ticket. And that's also a reflection of America and our society, is that I think, you know, for the 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 black men that are sort of doing things that society may deem as illegal or unjust i think if you really look at the why why they're doing those things and i'm not trying to make excuses or anything but because i understand people have choices and whatnot but not everybody does have but that many choices has a choice, you know what i mean there's very few choices sometimes put in front of people um and the whole idea of oh just pull yourself up by your bootstraps doesn't always apply to everybody so to me i look at that character and he, you could do we could do a whole movie just about him mm -hmm. to be honest and uh and um but it's so interesting i almost find that particularly the black audience is more pissed about queen of slim dying than they are about that black guy turning them in mm -hmm. because there's this weird thing about they're like oh yeah because i because a brother done did me dirty or because my own cousin sold me out so there's this weird thing where they can relate to that but they still are like but i want the black folks to get away so it's like to me it's all this all very educational and very interesting but it's been a very thing like like they all seem like uh-huh that's real they, they seem to kind of respond to it because i think there's not one black person that can't say like when a black person portrays you it just hurts more and people can relate to it so i think when they see that they're like oh i don't trust him or should we trust him because we do sometimes doubt our own even though the whole movie is really about community and how black folks have you know helped them get to where they are but there's always that that one is sometimes you know all skin folk and kin folk mm. um for as heavy as this film is there's a love story at the heart of it mm -hmm. and develop it really really well it's interesting they spend sort of most of the movie always looking over their shoulder but they have that scene in the bar uh which is amazing can you, can you talk about the idea behind that yeah, I really wanted to feel like a throwback, you know, even like the setting, you know, I remember saying like it feels like a juke joint, like from back in the day, you know, when uh, we still had to drink out of the shitty water fountain, because I wanted <laughs> to feel like a safe space. I, and also, too, I think there's a, I do have a bit of a nostalgia for like, like, back in the day, even though I know that with the further back you go, the more difficult it is for, for black people, but there was still, um, you know, people, black, older black people talk about before integration, they were like, the joys of segregation was that we had strong communities because there were other communities that we just couldn't go into. There were stores we couldn't walk inside the front, you know, so we kind of had to have our own doctors, our own dentists, we had to have our own, you know, places to dance, and we had to have our own this and that, and so there was almost this more, black people were almost more bonded during that time. Um, and uh, and it's a very interesting theory to think about, because you're like, well, no, we need integration. It's like, well, yeah, we do, but we sometimes, sometimes lose ourselves in that. And so I kind of wanted that moment to feel like a throwback before everything was all mixed up. It's like these were these people that felt like a community. And I wanted it to feel old and, uh, and, and, and bluesy and moody. And, uh, and for a girl to say you're safe here, for a woman to say you're safe here. So I think when Melina read it, you know, I think she really just elevated it to a, a beautiful place. And still, when I watch that scene, I just get swept up in it. Even though I've seen it a bunch of times, even though obviously I wrote it. I I think what Melina brings to it is just sort of a style, a grace, a dignity, um, and just a musicality that even I couldn't imagine when I was writing it by myself. Yeah, no, the cinematography in this movie is, is incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, backtracking all the way back to the inciting incident, it's more powerful for how familiar it is. Um, what was it like sort of shooting that sequence and did it stir up anything? 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was horrendous. The whole shoot was in, in some ways, you know. And I mean, not just because of production challenges, and that's why I think our our collaboration between Lena and I is so strong. You know, it's like being a black creator and having to walk on set when your people are being killed daily, and somebody who can relate to that emotion um, and that reasoning and that understands your fight for it to represent it um, was really important. And so, you know, we fought. We fought to shoot in Cleveland, uh, which we did. It felt right to honor Tamir Rice mm -hmm. um, and to be there shooting that scene. When we got there, was, there was a polar vortex. Mm -hmm. So it was oh, like freezing. below freezing. We had to take breaks every 15 minutes. And it was our first few days of shooting. We should mention that uh, Manila is very, very cold in the UK right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Currently freezing. <laughs> so I would like to take breaks every 15 minutes to go drink soup right now. Uh -huh. um, but no, so yeah, the temperatures, the environment w was cold and, and, and that really informed the characters like it was the right choice to make you know I remember Daniel standing outside when they're after they're being pulled over and asking if he wanted to heat up the car where he was touching the car it was freezing it was the metal was sticking to his mm -hmm. hand and he said no he wanted to feel that he wanted to feel what it felt like in those moments being a black person getting pulled over um, and to relate to it and when he just when he says to the cop you know it's just cold like he's just begging for a bit of humanity in that moment and you see how the environment really influences his his performances in a, in a really authentic way. Um, I wanted to place audiences of all colors in that situation. You know, that's something we, as black people, have to deal with. Uh, being pulled over by the cop, that sense of fear that comes on when that blue light is behind you. You don't know if you're gonna make it out of that incident, right, dead or alive. You don't know if that could be the end of your life or your life can take a completely different uh, direction. And so I wanted everybody to be able to have that experience and have empathy uh, for what we go through and, and hopefully create some thought and create a dialogue about it. Mm -hmm. And that scene is more interesting the more you learn about the characters because you learn that uh, Slim, he's a man of deep faith in mm -hmm. Christianity and he's the one who murders the dude. Mm -hmm. I mean, how important was that to sort of... In self-defense. Right, right. <laughs> in in self-defense, yes. Um, how important was you know, that aspect of the character? Because it comes up you know, again and again, he's tested, you know, time and time again when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, you know, and I'd written that scene of like a million different ways where she killed the cop and he killed the, I mean, it was just like so many different ways of uh, executing that. But ultimately, what we landed on, and again, I think that was just like me and Melina like going back and forth just trying to find the right balance. Um, just the one that it absolutely feels like self-defense, which you can kind of get a sense of both sides being heated. But ultimately, like her, the bullet grazing her thigh, and it, but it's, you, you don't know that right away. All you just know is like a bullet flew, she went down, and I just think that there's something and beautiful. that's all Slim knows. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. all Slim knows. And I, and I love that, yes, he is um, respectable and, uh, and, and, and not confrontational, Obviously, you see how he deals with the cop, but and there's something that happens when this black woman mm -hmm. that yes he just met, but feels a kinship with that, she, that he likes that he he's, he's already like kind of starting to get to know. He's just his instinct is to protect her. Mm -hmm. His instinct is to 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 help, and I think that that is something very beautiful about this black man just instinctively like going after this person that injured this this black woman that he that he just met because that's another thing too i feel like a black man should, should try to help a black woman even if you don't know her you know what i'm saying if you see a black woman walk, any yes any woman but particularly black man if you see a black woman walk down the street like you should if you see she's in trouble like i would assume that black men should do that like this as in our community to help each other out and i think that's what that moment represented was him really standing up for her 
Conversely, Queen is uh, sort of embedded in the law. Yep. Um, do you feel the need to sort of talk to any real life lawyers to sort of learn what might happen in this situation? Well, it was born out of a book I read, written by a lawyer, um, Just Mercy. That's uh, so by Brian Stevenson. Brian, written by Brian Stevenson, and uh, and I had read that book, and and obviously was just very moved by it, and and moved by him and the work that he was doing. Uh, so that inspired me because initially she was, the character was always a lawyer I think she was supposed to be in law school or something but I, I wanted to make it more specific I was like oh what if she's like her? she literally is going around trying to help young really probably like uh, men of color to get them off of death row and to me it just felt like something very special and also feels very heroic and uh, and it's just it's just thankless work I mean Brian Stevenson does it still every day and um, and it's it's something that very few people even know about like cause there's just so many people sitting on death row right now with very shaky evidence and people don't realize that this, like these, or none at all none at all like mm -hmm. the government is literally killing people all the time and so I just like the idea of her having a piece of him because after reading his book and his beautiful words I was really inspired and I kind of wanted to do a bit of a tribute to him with this film and mm. um, a smaller but still very powerful scene is when Queen is getting her hair unbraided, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, which is not something that you see very, very often. Right. Can, you, can you speak to the importance of that? And also, as a follow-up to that, uh, Jodie Tunner-Smith, I know that she's tweeted in the past how uh, there haven't been any black hairdressers on set, and sometimes that causes a problem. Mm -hmm. I assume that that wasn't not the case with I this film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, not with Melina's Yeah, been. never happening. Um, yeah, that's something. That's something I added right when they were tra transforming. Right, because initially know? in the script, like I was gonna have her put on a wig. Um, yeah, and, and I really wanted to tell yeah. a, a black hair story. Right. You know, that's not something we see. It had to change. Like her hair. Had to change yeah. So I think she was supposed to start out with something, and then she would put on a blonde wig, and then right. as we found Jody, and I thought she was so stunning as herself with her right. short hair. Right. Um, and then we thought about, oh, we've never seen really twists or braids, right? And then instead of Instead of her covering her, herself with a wig, what is, she becomes herself, and that's her own mask in a way, right? She becomes covered by, by stepping into her, her own being. Um, and so I, I really love that idea. And also when you're talking about like redefining beauty, right? When you right. think about black women and what's been more beautiful, it's like the closer you are to a European standard, that's been what's been considered more beautiful, mm -hmm. taken from slavery, taken from colonization. Right. Um, and the longer hair or the straighter it is also is considered the more beautiful. So to have this woman with kinky, beautiful curls um, and very dark skin was really important to us to start redefining beauty and represent our darker skinned sisters and, and reflect them on screen. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's done often. And then, you know, black women, we do each other's hair all the time. It's a really intimate mm -hmm. moment shared and I think it's a really beautiful tradition. Um, and so I wanted to show it. I, you know, we added that scene when they mm -hmm. are transforming and, and finding other dresses and he gets his head shaved and I had her take her hair out and that's something that I think a lot of people can relate to and appreciate because you don't really see that represented on screen right. often or ever. Yeah, I think it's just shot so beautifully with the hues and the, the score. Like, I just think it's done so so well, yeah. Yeah, no, I can tell for sure. Um, major moment in the film was when the black boy uh, kills the black cop, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very powerful scene. Can you just talk to me about the logistics of that, having it be a black cop instead of a white cop, the, the, having it be sort of in the midst of a protest? What was the thinking behind that scene? Well, to me, it was important that there wasn't sort of like this blanket, simple statement, you know, and I think it's easy sometimes, again, for audiences 
for there to be, oh, all white cops are bad, you know? And so I think what I wanted to be clear is that not all cops are white. That's one. <laughs> so um, not all cops are men. Uh, and so I just really wanted to be clear about that and mindful about that and, and that they all may wear the same uniform, but these are actual human beings. And but the uniform represents something An very scary. Yeah, mm -hmm. to particularly to black and brown people. And and that's the real point there is that that uniform or just cops in general for young black boys of particularly junior's age are very scary because they they hear the news, they know what's going on, they're on Instagram, they see the hashtags. So to Junior, uh, a cop, any cop, whether it be black, white, female, Latino, whatever, to him, they're the enemy. To him, they represent death. To him, they represent injustice. And there's also a statement on the fact that the, the youth mimic us. And so he sees Queen of Slim like everybody else and feels like, oh, these are heroes. They're out here, you know, doing the work. They're out here, they're sort of the new Black Panthers. And so he wants to be like them. He wants to be immortal. And I think he thinks that I want to do what they did in a way. And and he gets being at a protest that for the most part is peaceful. But when a cop tells him to go home, he doesn't have the understanding yet to say, oh, this cop doesn't mean me any harm. All he knows is he just sees a uniform and he sees the word. That's why I love it so powerful. It says police on his chest. Mm -hmm. And that's the only word that matters to him. And so and he, he does it not in self-defense, but he does it in defiance. And and I think that a lot of the youth are doing things in defiance. That's why you hear these kids now is because of, unfortunately, there have been a couple overdoses or of, of rappers um, recently with the drug use. And that has been around for a long time, but a lot of rappers now are saying like, yo, we gotta stop rapping about this because like people, our, our people are dying and like we don't want kids to die. So it's the same thing. It's like youth mimic the adults. So we kind of, either we do better or they're gonna continue to do worse. Mm. Uh, just, as a little, just as we wrap up the last couple mm -hmm. of questions, I wanted to ask um, the, the sex scene. Um, you have it. It's an interesting choice to sort of have that mixed in with Oh, right. uh, the, mm -hmm. the scene. What, what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, actually, it's something that you know right. we didn't agree on going into right. the into the shoot. The shoot. Um, you know, again, I'm really good at. I think both of us we challenge each other, mm -hmm. and for the most part, you know, we see eye to eye. But that's something that Lena was really adamant about. And so, you know, because of our relationship and our trust, it's like, okay, I'll shoot it this way. If it doesn't work, then we can agree that we'll change it in post. Mm -hmm. And so we shot it that way, which thankfully it worked because there was no other way to cut it. But <laughs> uh, why, and why, why do you think it worked that way? When I was in the edit, it dawned on me. I'm putting, I'm piecing them together. Well, two things. Firstly, the the obvious, which is like Queen and Slim's relationship is climaxing literally mm -hmm. at the same time as the movement that they've kind of created is climaxing, right? So there's a parallel there. But as I'm watching them intercut. I said, oh, this, this is what was meant. It's like we talk about this film as, as being about two black people falling in love as the world is burning down around them, right? And if you only take those two scenes intercut together and you see nothing else about Queen and Slim, you understand what we're trying to say and who we are. Mm -hmm. um, it exemplifies the entire thought behind the, the whole film. So those two scenes um, are actually extremely pivotal. Um, in the making of this film. Absolutely. I thought I'd end with uh, the most important question. Um, you've worked with Beyonce. Has <laughs> yes. she seen the film? Yeah, she's definitely seen the mm -hmm. film. And? What she, she hated think? it. No. <laughs> um, she walked out of that film quite moved and was uh, 
you know, talking to me about it for, for weeks after. She was really proud, obviously, of, of how far I've come since we started, well, I started with her um, many years ago. Um, and, and she just thought, I think what was so special is she saw so much of me in it and thought it was a really beautiful film and not just because I did it, but because she actually appreciated it as a beautiful piece of black art. Yeah. And I think that's what means the most. It's funny because mm-hmm. uh, Aziz also recently saw it. He yeah. was a little late, but <laughs> he saw it um, and he really loved it. Mm-hmm. Like he, and, and, uh, and he's an artist, not only that I work with, but I, I, I respected course. him like before I worked with him. And obviously I, I respect him even more now having worked with him and gotten to know him. Uh, but I think he said something to be very interesting. He was like, Honestly, he said, when other artists appreciate your art, that's when you know you got something good. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought, like, wow, that's so interesting. Because he was like, because the truth is, he said, other artists know what it takes to do it. He said, so if they can look at it and go, yeah, that's special, that's good. He's like, that's what you want. And it's almost like, like, like I always hear comics say, they can, they can kill. But when they get off the stage and another comic says, that was funny, that was good, it's a good <laughs> set. They were like, that means more to them. Of course. You know, and so, and I think to me, uh, I got to talk to me later after, because <laughs> I didn't get to see her that night because it was a little crazy. But um, but yeah, just her imparting that and also talking to Jay about it. Like, But and, but for me, I think Aziz is sort of that for me, like that person that I came up with. And so to hear him say it, it really meant something to me. I think I told mm-hmm. you, you know, because that's the thing. It's that's like the exactly people you exactly. come up with, the people that watch you grow, the people that gave you a shot, and then you. And it, it, I think they're almost probably like proud parents because mm-hmm. then they're seeing us <laughs> step out on our own, outside, really stepping out of their shadow in mm-hmm. a way, and, and really making our own mark. And them saying like, "I'm grateful that I saw something in you," because now you're stepping forth and you're doing your own thing. So it's a really special thing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And on that note, mm-hmm. Melina, Melina, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you, you so for having much us, man. Thank you. I want to have to say hats off to you. That was an incredible interview <laughs> that I haven't heard yet, but well done. <laughs> oh my thank God, you. I'm so moved. <laughs> Tears. <laughs> to quote Chris Martin. <laughs> Tears stream <laughs> down your face? That's kind of weird. What's that about? He's very presumptuous in that song, do you think? Now that you mention it, mm. you may have a point. <laughs> you can't fix another person, guys. No, yeah. no. We're all... Which I suppose is one of the themes of this movie. Of Queen Again, and Slim. Back to Queen oh, yes, and Slim. that's right. Let's discuss Queen and Slim. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for bringing me back on track. Um, this is a fantastic film, isn't it? Yes. And uh, why is it not in the Oscar conversation? What happened? What, what, what went on? What happened? Well, I've just, you, you've, you ask me this as I've just been reading another one of those obnoxious um, anonymous Oscar ballots. Um, and oh my God, the worst people in the world. The worst people yeah. in the world. The worst people. And this is a guy who doesn't realise that he's a huge sexist. I'm going to go ahead and assume he's also a huge racist. Wait a second, I wasn't in an Oscar ballot. I just <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> um, But it's one of these things where, you know, you have to make sure that people have seen the movies. And I think that people sometimes make the effort. You know, there's a lot of movies coming out at this time of year. It's a busy time. People are, you know, busy being vegans for January or giving up drink for January. And they're they're kind of preoccupied and they don't necessarily have time to watch every Oscar buzzed, uh, award buzzed film that comes out. And I think mm. people make decisions about what the priorities are. And they make decisions to prioritize, let's say, The Irishman 
absolutely fantastic film, but they decide that they're all going to go and watch that. They decide that they're all going to go and watch 1917. That's a priority film for them. And they maybe don't prioritise Little Women. They don't prioritise Harriet. They don't prioritise Queen and Slim. If you prioritise the films by the, you know, men, white men, then you're going to miss stuff like this. And I think that is honestly, I think that's one of the reasons why it's not been as much in the conversation as it maybe should be. I think there were some articles out online a few months ago uh, during which Melina Matsuka said that they put on screenings of the film, but barely anybody no showed up, mm. um, which is yeah indicative of everything you just said. So there seems to be a long way to go in terms of breaking down people's perceptions mm. and and uh, and breaking down those barriers. Long way to go. Very long way. Long way to go. As but, this, as but this movies like this, clear. movies like this help as well, don't they? Because this is, you know, I I, sp- I spoke to Daniel Kaluuya about this and about why he and Melina and Lena wanted to, to make it. And, you know, it is clearly a movie about the black experience in America mm-hmm. as well. And, uh, you know, and this is a, a movie with a African-American uh, director, African-American writer as well, pretty much all black cast as well, which is, which is interesting. And it's been made within the studio system. Mm. So that's, that's, a, that's a step forward, isn't it? Yeah, now when I spoke to uh, Lena, she made a point of saying that the studio chased the movie and not the other way around, Yeah, uh, mm. which is... That is encouraging. Yeah, yeah, very, very encouraging. You know, like, I think when it comes to the content that's being made, we've seen some really big strides mm. in the past few years. It's just a matter of them being recognised, and that is an entirely different battle, yeah. which was still, you know, light is away from figuring out. And as we record this, um, just basically in the last two days, the Annenberg Institute has has produced their latest round of uh, research into mm-hmm. f- f- films, basically, and, and how films perform with non-male leads, with non-white leads, um, not just in the US, but around the world. And they have the numbers. They have the numbers to show that it, this does not affect your box office. They have the numbers to show that all things being equal, a film with a, a person of colour in the lead role, a woman in the lead role, a woman of colour, God help us, in the lead role, will still do really well. You can take... the It's not a risk. I'm not, I was going to say you can take this risk. I'm not saying that. Every film is a risk. These are a risk. But they are no more a risk than any other film. Um, there is no guarantee of success with a white male as opposed to anyone else. So just make the films and make them good and and that's the best indicator of success. So so yeah, so I think it is it's it's great that they're being made and I think yeah, we've just got to get them out there. And and there is still a difference in terms of how much is spent on public publicizing um films with um non-white male leads. So there are still barriers that the studios have to overcome. Um there are still obviously far fewer films being made with female directors, but things are moving in the right direction um, and I think this awards, this year's awards have been a blip in the wrong direction but are not necessarily indicative that f- progress isn't being made so I'm, I, I do feel hopeful about that. So let's talk about the film itself then. Yeah. I think the best place to start is with the end. Yeah. So we were, we were talking about this Amon um, recently about the, the ending whether that, I think some people felt it was, what was your word? Almost a betrayal or something? Uh, did, did you want them to get out? Essentially, yes. and did, yes. you, did you feel that that it was inevitable that they died? Well, here's the thing: I think the movie sort of lulls you into a sense mm. of thinking yeah. that they're going to get out. So when you see the cop cars, like I did, like a big like no and just a big sigh, and obviously in that moment you just feel sick. But 
when the film is done and when you're reflecting on it, it couldn't have ended any other yeah. way. Um, I think that's a sign of sort of really, really great writing. Mm. Um, it was very interesting in the interview uh, with Lena Menina that there's been a lot of sort of backlash uh, to the film from black American critics, which I've been sort of following very sort of closely. Mm. And I, I almost, I, I didn't really have to even ask Lena about that. She was, you know, she, she had a lot to say about it. And I think a lot of what she had to say was very, very interesting. Mm. One, one of the things I remember sort of, most clearly is that I think she said something akin to audiences want films that make them feel good. Mm-hmm. And this is not a movie that necessarily does that, but again, it couldn't really end any, ended any other way. And I mentioned it in the interview, Get Out feels like the fantasy, mm-hmm. whereas this feels like the reality. And I think there has to be room for both. Of course, um, yeah. Get Out originally ended in... A very right. similar way yeah. Yeah. as well. So do you think that the Get Out was the cop-out in a weird way? or In, in some <laughs> it ways. It kind of is. But, yeah. but I mean, it, it's very satisfying in that film just because it's such a relief. You've been so through the ringer in that film in the last sort of 20 minutes, really half have. an hour, yeah. that you, you need, it's, it's a moment of catharsis. Whereas in this one, you've almost, there's almost been a, a, just a... A hint of fairy tale in in their escape, you know, mm-hmm. the scene with Very the horses, so. the the dancing in the in the little sort of speakeasy. Um, there's there's a sense of almost it being like a like the Odyssey or something, and they're going mm-hmm. from island to island and and having these little side adventures, you know. And so that brings you back down to earth with a thump. And I th- and I think it's yeah. it's not catharsis, but it's another kind of of payoff in a strange way. It reminds you that it's not always possible to escape. And, and I do kind of agree with what, what Lena said in the interview that um, if if you had had them escape and fly off into the sunset, I think it might have been satisfying dramatically in the story, but, but it would have been dishonest to the black American experience that, that the film is trying to talk about, which is that, you know, they're at risk of... of being killed by cops in insane numbers. It's it's mm-hmm. appalling. Um, I also thought it was really significant at the end of the film that it was a white female cop who pulls the trigger. Apparently, it looks like she sort of just panics and, and pulls it. Yeah. But she Whoops, kills. My bad. Yeah, but she thing. kills yeah. uh, Queen. And I think that's really important. I think it's a there's a clear indictment of of and I say this as sort of one phrase, white feminism. So that's not all feminists who are white. That is a, a, a strain of feminism that wants to uplift white women and leave everybody else behind. Mm. Um, and I think there's there's a clear thread of that running through this film in Chloe Sevigny's kind of hesitance when she's, mm-hmm. when she's faced with a cop. Now, she does the right thing, but there's still a, clearly a moment there where she's you know, tempted to kind of go for the easy option. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then in that woman at the end who's just ultimately just panics about herself, I guess, in the situation. And as a result, a black woman dies. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because I think, I think the movie acknowledges that life is a very complicated mm-hmm. game. And we have the, the white female cop who kills Queen, ultimately. Uh, but for example, it's interesting that it's, it's a black guy who gives them up. As well, mm-hmm. yeah. I think the basic point of the time is that you know we are not a monolith, yeah, and uh, that definitely came across for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So you think that you know, the ending it, it absolutely one hundred percent had to happen? You, you know, little coda where there. I wish it hadn't. I mean, yeah, Cuba. <laughs> you know, yeah. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? There, there's a, there's there is a moment where you think they might get away, and and there's mm. there, even after the you know the cars come down the runway, you're like, are they going to run for the plane? You know, is this mm. going to be the sort of Hollywood ending? Mm. You know, you, you have that hope, and I think. I think you need it, but I think it would have been satisfying for this film, for these two characters, and I just don't know if the film would have worked as 
a bigger story if you had done that. Yeah. It's very affecting. Like, mm-hmm. it really hit me hard. And yeah, maybe sort of, you know, leaving the cinema, you're not sort of, you know, in a you know, joyful mood. But mm-hmm. I think when you reflect on it, it really sort of, it, it, it stays with you mm-hmm. in a good way. There's a point, and um, I know that you talked about this with Melina and Lena, and I've, I've seen them say it in previous interviews as well, because uh, I read, or I did a bit of reading on the film for, for once. <laughs> Usually I just go into movies blind and you go, oh, what's happening here? Uh, but I, I did a little bit of reading on it, and in, in terms of the greater, the larger point of the ending of the movie and the larger point of the names of Queen and Slim, the real names, only being revealed at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. I presume disclosure names to each other at certain points in the film but we just didn't see it is this idea that the media and the racism in the states perceives black people one way and you don't you don't have names you don't have an identity mm. like eric garner until you're killed by cops until you're joked out by the cops or until you're you're shot pulled over the traffic stop and, and killed and really lend you become folk heroes in a way you have that really interesting thread where the the character called junior basically says to them on the beach, it doesn't matter if you get out or not because you're going to be immortal. So in a weird way, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? The idea that they have to die in order for their memory and their names to actually stand for something. That's really disturbing. Yeah, Yeah. it is, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I think there's definitely an element of like dehumanization in the in the news reports that we see up until that point. Like, presumably a news report would actually give their names, but we don't see that as an audience. All we see is a black male and female. That's all yeah. that the news reports that we see mm. talk about. And so there is that element of dehumanization and just um, r- reduction to their race and nothing more, um, as opposed to seeing them as individuals, which is what the whole story that we see focuses mm. on. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I think the film was really leaning into sort of that that myth- mythologizing before mm. the final sort of mm. few minutes take place. You got that obviously the uh, what, what the posters are of the film are where they take that, that uh, photo in the car, which is just you know I'm sure we're talking about it, but the cinematography in this oh film gosh, is yeah. just ridiculous, and finding that image just feels so effortless but so right. Um, I really, really loved it. Uh, so, so yeah, but I, I definitely take your point on it, for sure. And was that like a, a, a... Didn't they bring in a famous photographer to actually take the shots? They did. The name escapes me. Um, da, 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 da. But, yeah. Jeff, Jeff Snapper, I think, was his, <laughs> was his name. <laughs> that sounds right. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> yep, famous photographer. We'll, we'll shoot anyone, anytime, anywhere. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and locate it. As we chat, yes. Um, when I said I did some reading up in the film, I didn't take notes. <laughs> <laughs> I should have. I should have maybe done that. But, but it is. It's a beautiful looking film, and mm. uh, it amazed me that they only shot in two states, and they mainly shot in New Orleans as well, I believe, uh, because you really get the sense that they are traversing the length and breadth of the country. And there's some really indelible images in this movie that that, mm. that stuck with me and really ballsy things as well that they try so if we're going to talk about indelible images let's start with Daniel Kaluuya's buttocks <laughs> that's, that's what hit you <laughs> what's that? that's what hit you more that's than what, well if you're watching this film in 3D <laughs> oh boy yes the famous 3D cut of Queen and Slim <laughs> uh, because of that that juxtaposition of the sex scene yeah. um, with Junior's act of defiance, act of protest, that's really ballsy and bold. Mm. And uh, it's a long time, I think, since any of us have seen a sex scene like that that doesn't feel gratuitous. Yeah. Mm. That's very, very beautifully shot. 
Yeah. Um, feels very, very intimate without being gratuitous, which is not an easy balance to get, but she yeah. nailed it. Also logistically difficult. <laughs> I mean, those big old American cars have a lot more space than you know, modern European ones. There's a lot of room in the trunk. <laughs> oh, boy. What? Oh, again, back to the buttocks, my goodness. He's a good-looking dude. Yeah. So what's your take on that scene and that juxtaposition and, and you know, why Melina and Lena, the two Lenas, did that? <laughs> We've seen that a bit in, in music videos. Obviously, that Melina's background uh, in music videos for the biggest stars in the world, basically. Um, the biggest star in the world. Well, yeah, but, but like not just Beyonce, but like Rihanna and everybody else as well. Um, but she... I thought there's there's been a long history in music videos of of combining sex and violence essentially, mm. and and I felt like it maybe kind of came out of that, but it it did work because it was so unsettling and it reminded you of the context of this love story. I guess you know that we we see the film start with just a horrifically bad date between these two, like they don't seem to, like they're ever yep. going to click. Um, and Is it that bad? Is it that bad? It's about? bad. Believe it's, me, it's, it's bad. yeah. It's I it's don't a, know if it's there's, there's, there's little moments like where you know where she's kind of like complaining about the restaurant. Why did we come here? And he uh, goes, "Well, it's black owned." And she goes, "All right, touche." So there's mm. there's moments of connection, but it's clear that they're just not in the same headspace. They're just not at the same stages. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not going to work out this time. Maybe it's just the wrong pl- time rather than the wrong people. But it's it's just not there at that point. Um, so then to have come to this point where. You know, there is a, a very strong connection by that point in the mm. movie between them. Um, and yet it's against the background of protests. It's against the background of violence. It's against the background of being told to basically be quiet and go home. And I think there's probably a wider point there of black lives. Like you're, there's always this ever-present threat. There's always this ever-present mm-hmm. background. So however happy you are in the moment and however great things are going there's there's this context to it which is which is far more upsetting and that's not just true of of black people but it's particularly true of black people in america you know it's it we see it all over the world like anywhere that, that there's violence anywhere that there's oppression you're still trying to live your life day to day you're still trying to do the best you can but you're doing it in this context in this wider world mm. yeah, the other side to it is that it's a big sort of climatic moment in the movie and that happens as a certain other climax is happening. Oh my <laughs> goodness, I'm on. <laughs> You've corrupted me, you Chris. filthy beggar. <laughs> One mention of the word buttocks and he's oh. off. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Lila and Melina talk a little bit about it in, in the interview. Okay. Uh, but, but yeah. It's a great moment. Uh, yeah, I just I was a bit, a bit struck by, by the boldness of that moment. And there's loads of great... You talk about that lovely scene where they go to, I don't know, is it a speakeasy, the bar, the you know, speakeasy? No, of course not, not the 1920s, you idiot. But, you know, that, that bar I where they're, they're well, basically but... given, you know, passage, safe passage, like you know, the bar lady says to Slim, we know, we know who you are, but it's okay, you're mm. fine, you're safe here. And you have that little moment of tranquility that, yeah. because that, I think that things like that are important because they start off with this bad date. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like Salah in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they have they have a bad date, and they don't, you know, they're thrust together under these very trying circumstances. Mm. There's a lot of snapping at each other, and there's a lot of snapping at each other. So to get you know, and it's a movie, so there's a little bit of maybe artificiality, a little bit of things being pushed and pulled by the by the writer and the director. 
Um, but that's fine. That's okay. But you know, you have to still have a an arc of believability about the relationship. So you go from the point where you're having a bad date. Although I don't think it's that bad. Uh, whether it be in there, I, it says listen, a lot about you. I am, I have, <laughs> I, well, I have officially never been on a date, so I don't know for sure. So Do you need to tell me how you and Father sort of got to. Well, we just kind of hooked up. It was just one of those things. It's just we were, you know, we were working together. There was a mutual attraction. You know, you've been in the room with me. You know the mutual attraction that works. (laughs) It's undeniable, Helen. (laughs) Admit it, O'Hara. You're both wildly in love with me. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. This has gone badly. (laughs) I really made a play for it there. It's gone wrong. Uh, No, it was just a mutual attraction. We didn't actually go out on a a date, uh, so to speak. When we started seeing each other, it was as a couple. Anyway, this may be TMI, but... (laughs) But that date for me wasn't that bad. But they obviously are starting from a very, very, very bad place. And then they get to the point where Slim is bereft at the loss of Queen at the end. And he's, you know, he's, he would rather, because he chooses death at that point, Mm. doesn't he? He walks towards, you know, they put the woman down um, and they they kill him because of that. And they still call him armed and dangerous. Which is fucking ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And that made me very, very mad. Um, but you know that's they they have to fill in the blanks of that relationship very very nicely. Do you, do you think they do? Did you buy into that relationship? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's so affecting, and uh, yeah, I love how their per- personalities slowly get in sync mm. um, uh, as the movie goes on. And yeah, it's, it's in those quiet moments, like the uh, moment in the bar. Uh, like some of the conversations in the in the car, where the film really, really sings. Like not not just that moment, but that uh, to the debate um, about Luther Vandross in the car yes. is just you know this is also a surprisingly funny movie given how intense mm. it is, and that's one of the sort of the funniest moments. And yeah, and just how how they you know studying uh, get in sync is great, and you have to sort of you know give a hand to the performances by Kaluuya and Jodie Tony Smith. Daniel Kaluuya, by the way is on as good a five movie run as any actor in the last 20 years or so. It's insane. Johnny English Reborn. <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> so you got Queen, Queen and Slim, mm-hmm. Widows, Black oh, Panther, good. Good. Get Out, mm-hmm. and Sicario. That is... I mean, that's decent. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. It's pretty yeah. good. That's why I've been saying that, you know, if I had choice for who the next Bond would be, it would be Kaluuya easily. Hallelujah. Um, yeah. He does he does have a certain amount of swagger. Like be he's amazing. He's just a very cool guy. Like well, you didn't watch the Baftas, but if you saw him walk out on stage at the Baftas, just like yeah. No, he's yeah, a, yeah, he's, a, he's a yeah. cool dude. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I love how he actually like talk shows into the public appearances because it it just feels like he's being himself. Mm. And you know, that is so entertaining. I I watched him on um uh, Graham Norton and he he loves talking about his mother who sounds like an incredible woman mm. and that is hilarious and yeah just it's just so casual just like you know what's happening when you went to Baptist and stuff like that is is great um, so yeah he would absolutely be my choice I think he'd be amazing in the role and really sort of take it in some interesting directions yeah, probably not going to happen but hey he could do better he can do better <laughs> <laughs> he could do better <laughs> uh, yeah no, that's I had never considered that before I mean uh, the, the main impediment for me is that he's not Henry Golding but you know <laughs> what, can you do? what can you do oh my god you love him <laughs> uh, the, the attraction is very much mutual <laughs> okay, okay I forgot your uh, yeah. overwhelming magnetism there oh, yeah. <laughs> it's undeniable O'Hara <laughs> be attracted to me <laughs> damn it 
And for so the Jodie Turner Smith, I I like to call it an if you don't know now you know performance. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, to keep up with Daniel Kaluuya for her first sort of feature role. Yeah, yeah. I, I read some reviews of this movie that kind of dissed her a little bit and said that uh-uh. she, she doesn't keep up with Daniel Kaluuya. I, I thought she does. Oh, absolutely. Like, if, you, if, if you didn't know this was her first first performance, mm-hmm. you it's mind-blowing. She's really, really good. And of course, listen, I, everyone gets points in this movie. The, the, the two actors in this role, the, the two lead actors in this movie are both doing accents as well. As well as all the, the tricky, lift, heavy lifting of, you know, remembering your lines and, you know, making sure your buttocks are shiny and... <laughs> That's difficult, you guys. My buttocks are not shiny right now. I don't need to know that. I really didn't. Um, but this is a very serious movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, she is. I think she's incredible, and she's got such a sense of um, self confidence and purpose at the beginning of the movie. And she's the kind of career woman. She's kind of. Mm. Uh, she seems a lot more driven than he does at the beginning of the movie, and. Um, you know, is clearly kind of, she's got her path, she's got her focus, she's just looking for a bit of entertainment on after a hard day. And, okay, fine, she'll go out with this guy who was certainly quite proud of his message and she didn't disagree with him, so let's assume he wrote her a really cute message. He's a funny um, guy. He, he, yeah, he's, I'm sure he is. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, so she's, she's gone out for a momentary entertainment and it's turned into all of this. But she is clearly not someone who's used to not having a plan, not someone who's used to having to kind of wing it. So you see that in those early scenes of the two of them together, where she knows what they shouldn't do, but doesn't yet know what they need to do. And it, and it's kind of freaking her out a little bit. And mm. I think, so I thought she dealt with that really, really brilliantly. Um, she, I was going to say, it's really interesting, um, sort of, you say you say that she doesn't have a plan, and I, I, I well, no, but she, she, yeah, she yeah. quickly develops one. Yeah, <laughs> no, Slim's journey is very interesting to me in that regard because it takes him such a long time to, you know, finally, you know, get clear on what the new status quo is mm. once he uh, shoots the cop. Mm. Because you know, I was watching rewatching it the other day, and the first of the things he says in the you know, ten minutes in the, in the, in the, in the ensuing minutes after. He, after the initial incident, uh, we can't just leave the cop here. I got to call my dad. We got to get you to a hospital to mm. when when he when he goes to the restaurant. Um, I am not a criminal. He wants to trust the chef who says he wants to help, but maybe doesn't mean it. Yeah. he's such a fundamentally good trusting person. Well, and it, does his, that come from his faith as well? Yeah, his literal yeah. That's yeah. a huge yeah. part of the film. His literal, yeah. um, you know, license plate: trust God. Yeah, you know, and which turns out to be maybe. I don't know what the film's saying there, but it seems to be not such a great plan if that is what he's hoping to do. It's interesting to me that she's, uh, you know, she's a, a, a defense lawyer. She works on death row, and she's the one who immediately says, "Our lives are over, and we need to run yeah. right now. Everything I have worked hard to build has gone in the blink of an eye." And she's the one who drives that. And mm-hmm. he takes it takes ages for him to, to realize that. Oh, we're living in the same world as these people, but we're not living in the same world as these people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I was uh, reading; it's a very separate case, but I was reading about stand your ground laws, and you know, mm. that's what the guy who who killed uh, Trayvon Martin used. Uh, women have not successfully used those generally. Um, those do not t- tend to apply to women, and they certainly do not tend to apply to black people. They tend to apply to white men. Um, so white men are allowed to stand their ground and def- and shoot anybody who comes at them. And everybody else, mm, you're probably not going to get away with using that defense. Um, and it seems like it's it's that kind of thing. Because we see 
the unedited dash cam footage is there. Yeah. There is a credible self-defense case. Absolutely. I'm not saying it's a slam dunk, mm-hmm. but it is a credible case. Um, but she knows immediately that that's not a case they're going to be able to make. Immediately. But the dash and that cam is, footage may be lost or something. Or, n- not even that, but even if, even if she knew the dash cam footage was there, even mm-hmm. if she knew that it was going to be seen unedited, she still wouldn't trust the system because she knows how the system works. And mm-hmm. the system is racist. Um, you are far more likely to go to death row on a murder charge if you are black. Um, far, far more likely because, well, partly because you're likely to be poor, you're likely to get a worse lawyer. If you have a half-competent lawyer, you almost certainly don't get the death penalty, actually, in the US. Even if you committed the same crime, um, you probably end up in prison for life. You get a you know, defense of insanity. You get something. Um, it, is, it is much harder for... Uh, let's say certainly a rich white person to get, to end up on death row, so so, make, so she's right. So make a good double bill with uh, Just Mercy, a very mm, heavy yeah, double bill, really heavy yeah. double bill. Uh, maybe yeah. watch Get Out afterwards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Our triple bill with yeah. clemency, but really or, or Johnny oh. English Reborn, one of the two. A happier moment in Daniel Kaluuya's career, where he wasn't being beaten up or mm. shot or blown up or yeah. <laughs> or any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting that uh, Just Mercy. And Queen and Slim, and recently as well, Black Klansmen, all I think brilliantly capture terror. Uh, you know, uh, let's be quite honest here. Uh, I don't think Helen and I will ever feel, uh, which is that terror that African American people will feel when they're pulled over mm. by a cop, and that is a horrendous experience, and the sheer tension of that in this movie the way it just the way it just escalates and this guy is just he's got a beef and he's just looking for someone to take it out on and uh, the the that's just awful Mm. it's horrific that's definitely horrific the other sort of thing just to backtrack a little bit we were talking about um uh jody tanner smith's Mm. uh character and sort of how sort of how she's the one driving the plot and and how sort of she has sort of made this career for herself the theme of black excellence in this film really really resonated with me because she is definitely sort of that type of character but he is mm. very content mm. and that line you know why can't black people just be ourselves mm-hmm. uh really hit me hard um obviously in a very sort of different way i you know being one of the still relatively few people in this sort of space mm-hmm. i definitely sort of feel that in a big way so yeah that those that, that theme that theme really uh, hit the note with me yeah Got time for a couple of uh, listener questions. Oh, okay. If you don't mind. Why not? I'm outraged. Uh, Owen Ling asks how much Thelma and Louise slipped into Queen and Slim. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because yeah, maybe less than you would expect, yeah. I think, if anything. Because that is, you know, a very similar in structure in the sense that it's two people on the run in a very cool car for at least part of the time in Queen and Slim, not all of it. Um, uh, who, the, the, you know, the Pontiac? Yeah, yeah. Who, who end up... Uh, you know, in a in a situation where it's kind of ride or die. Well, both in Thelma and Louise's case. Um, so yeah, there are, there are similarities, but it doesn't feel remotely similar. And I, I think this is one of the things. You know, I've, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. But you know, you just make a film with different people, and it instantly feels different. You know, mm-hmm. Thelma and Louise feels different to all of the many two men on the run stories mm-hmm. that we'd seen before. It this feels very different to Thelma and Louise because it's in an entirely different racial context. Um, so you just put different people into roles and you can make the same old shit and it will feel 
incredibly new and fresh and interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. Obviously, they have that line, you know, the black Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. Yes. I wonder, I didn't get to ask Lena Manila this, but I wonder if they regret that line in hindsight because a lot of sort of media people have run with it and mm. they've come out and said that they don't like the film sort of being compared to that because it's quite reductive. Mm. Also, it just massively inaccurate. Yeah. It, it just is. doesn't quite fit yeah. in that, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, they're criminals from the outset. So they're in love from yeah. the outset. Yeah. yeah. Whereas these guys are not criminals and they're you know, definitely not yeah. on the same page when mm-hmm. the film starts. When Bonnie and Clyde are gunned down in the end, they, they've earned it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, which is not the case here at all. I, I, it's interesting though because I think the media were running with that line even before the trailer came out because it's in the trailer. You see, you hear Bookie yeah. Woodbine say it, you know. It, it, it's just a very, it's an easy label to apply yeah. to a movie like this. You know, I'm honestly amazed we hadn't seen a black film in Louise. Mm. A black half male film <laughs> <laughs> in Louise. Sure. That's more of a tongue twister really, isn't it though? But yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very easy label for the yeah. media to take, uh, which, which is why it surprised me that there actually was a character uh, who referred to them mm. as that in the movie. Yeah. To, to be clear, by the way, when I said you can make any old shit if you put new people in the roles, I'm not referring to this as any old shit. I just <laughs> want to be absolutely clear on that because I don't want anyone shouting at me online. Um, because a, genuinely, I feel like um, what they've actually done here is is far more subtle and, and more layered um, in a lot of ways than than if you, if they had set out to make a Thelma and Louise type film. What they've done is clearly set out to make this specific story and layered it up accordingly. What did we think of uh, Bokeem Woodbine as Uncle Earl? <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see a movie about that guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he is. Uh, he has quite the setup in his house, doesn't he? Yeah, and uh, I want to know more backstory on Flea and Mrs. Flea, Chloe Sevigny, <laughs> as well. Like, so so he's he, meant to be one of the guys who served with the uncle in with Iraq. Uncle Earl, yeah, yeah. So there's a certain amount of paranoia mm-hmm. in regards to law enforcement and the establishment yeah. from those characters, clearly as well. Um, but they're almost like an underground railroad. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. a real... That's an interesting scene, isn't it? Yeah. So that idea of, well, first of all, how did they get in there so quickly uh, under the bed without making any noise? Mm. The SWAT team heard, but okay, that's fine. Fairy tale, <laughs> we'll go with it. Uh, but yeah, what's what's going on with those guys? I want to know more about them. And did the, not, did the SWAT team not look in the dresser where there were clearly two extra plates of food? Because that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, maybe they weren't searching the smaller Nothing places. Nothing gets past O'Hara. Yeah, no, she's like she's like Columbo, but in a Breton top. There we go. See, you got it now. We got it in the end. Uh, Sorry, Mark Ruffalo, O'Hara's got this. Say <laughs> so, so just one more thing. Just one more thing. No, nah, Ruffalo's back. Yeah. Um, at Jagster27 asks, uh, what did you think of the scene with the policeman letting him escape from the garage? I hated it at the time, but it's a scene that has made me think the most since. Uh, now I think it raises a great question about how black police officers deal with working alongside mm. racist bangly bangs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That was you. Was that you? No, no, he no, actually censored himself. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I thought it, I thought it was great because it was set up in that lovely little you know, exchange the moments before. When I say lovely, I mean racist as fuck. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, that character was primed. We knew everything we needed to know about that guy before he stands aside and lets them go. Because I would absolutely do the same if someone had just, you know, said whatever the equivalent is to me. I'd be like, well, fuck you then. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to help you. Um, yeah. yeah. It's again another example of how... Uh, uh, black people aren't all a monolith because mm. you have that character, but uh, Junior's father is not necessarily approving of what mm. Queen and Slim have done. So, uh, yeah. And then you've got the 
cop who's up against Junior, who's just right. begging him to go home and yeah. be safe. And get shot. Um, and get shot. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not a simple, you know, black, white, not in a racial sense, but in a moral sense issue. It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a far more complicated picture than that. Oh, movies make you think, don't they? <laughs> they really do. Speaking of things that make you think, Johnny English, you born. No, um, <laughs> the scene in the set of 7-Eleven where Slim goes in and literally hands the Glock mm. to the cashier, who then points it straight at him. I mean, that's a that's a squeaky bum time. Uh, that's moment. something. What, what was yeah. happening there for for you guys? That's something you don't often see. I think it just it again emphasizes how much of a not a criminal mm-hmm. Slim is, um, and you know he's been put in this situation where she's clearly been talking to him about you need to do this you you need to do this I can't do this it needs to be you they need to be scared of this big scary black man coming in and holding a gun on them and and he has clearly accepted the there's some kind of logic in that that they are absolutely out of money and they need to figure out something to do here um and yet he is still not that guy, not remotely that guy, and that's why he ends up in this situation but yeah the the little psycho who just likes playing with guns again it's a it's a portrayal of that particular kind of, you know, gun-toting redneck um, and and how scary those guys are. Even if they're not actually shooting you, having a guy who just likes guns is not a cool thing to be around, I don't think. Sorry to all of you out there who like guns, but like, come on, I dude. I love guns. Yeah. <laughs> no, probably in the real world, that would be sort of, you know, be one of the more implausible things uh, that would happen, but... I think it had already been established at that point that Slim is laughably trusting, especially <laughs> in the early going. So it tracks. It's interesting as well in terms of his faith and how clean living he is at the beginning of the film, the way that slowly but surely he gives, comes a bit looser towards the end. I mean, literally is smoking a joint by the end. Mm-hmm. The guy who grasses him up, grasses him up. Works right. at two levels, like the Matrix <laughs> revolutions. Uh, also, you know, he takes that swig of whatever it is, mm. bourbon, whatever bourbon. it is, at the bar, and just you know, and and you know, and exposes it, but talks in uh, in public. So you know, he, he's there's he's, not a lot of people arrived at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a camera crew. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess. Well, I guess he's put in a position where he, he sort of has no choice, and where the normal rules are ripped away from him. Maybe mm. you know, absolutely. Uh, all right, we've got to wrap this up. So I'm going to ask for your favourite scene we haven't discussed so far. What's your favourite moment? What's your favourite, what, what, what's stuck with you? Well, I like the horse riding scene. I thought that was really charming because, you know, you've got her sort of reminiscing about childhood. Um, and then that, that killer line about, you know, nothing, nothing scares a white man more than a black man on a horse because he has to look up at him. <laughs> <laughs> so then nothing will do slim, but he's got to get on a horse. He's got to experience that feeling. But of course, as soon as somebody comes along, he, yeah. he has to leg it, you know. Yeah. So I just, I just find all the kind of the, the, the shifts in that scene really, really charming. Mm. Uh, I think the the Luther Fandral scene is probably my favourite. <laughs> um, we've already we've already discussed it a little bit. I want to talk a bit about the soundtrack, oh, which yeah. is just Incredible. out of this world. It's so unapologetically black for one, and then to have the right track for the right moment all the way through is a very difficult thing to nail. But they really, really do it. And on top of everything else, they brought Lauren Hill out of retirement I mean. for a track. That's just 
That's incredible. When I heard her voice at the end, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> she's, I, she's playing in Greenwich in the summer. She you is, know yeah. That? yeah. Amazing. She's doing a, a gig at Greenwich Music Time. Greenwich Music Time. I was, gonna, I, was, I was on the verge <laughs> of buying tickets and then I thought, I'll just check my diary first. And I'm out of town. Oh, and no I'm way, really? Out. Yeah. Oh man. But I saw her Glastonbury last year. <laughs> I saw her at Glastonbury last year. She's unbelievable. She was such a big part of my kind of young adulthood um, with um, the miseducation. And she's her voice is still incredible. Oh. One of the greatest albums of all time. It is. It really yeah. is. I'm on. It's a. It's a mandate. Uh, <laughs> you, me, George by Asda. <laughs> and then we're going to go down to the Old Royal Naval College and check out some Lauren Hill. Sounds like a plan. Uh, and except for the George part. <laughs> and if you hang around after that, Mc, uh, McFly are playing the next day. Oh wow! <laughs> wow! Doesn't Chris, get any better than from that. From the Whoa. sublime to <laughs> McFly. I, I spoil or special you is what I do. We once uh, did an interview with McFly that never ran. I apologise. What? But yeah, I don't know why it got lost or something. But Whoa. it was. Um, I basically had to go and quiz them on their Back to the Future knowledge, and you will be glad to know they. They're no. on point. They know it. They've got it. <laughs> Legitimately, Tom yep. Fletcher from McFly. We have a thing in the magazine called First Take Club where famous people watch movies for the first time. Mm. And uh, I can't remember. Oh, there's a breakfast club. He had never seen the breakfast club. And he wrote a piece on it that is as good as anything written by a professional <laughs> film journalist, uh, which made me uh, hate him a little bit. <laughs> but you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great guy. Go see Lauren Hill and then McFly. What's happened to this podcast? I don't know what's happened to this podcast. Anyway, but yes, the anyway, needle drops yes. in this film are incredible. Yeah. Yes. I do love dropping the needle. You know me, can't get enough of that. And uh, yeah, this is just a tremendous film. And we hope that you enjoyed this. Everything else, you want to say anything else before we wrap it up? If not, if not, I'm going to wrap it up. Wrap it because up. Because that is it for our Queen and Slim spoiler special. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, our next spoiler special under this new spoiler special paywall. Uh, it's a brand new thing. It's a whole new era. It's a brave new dawn. It's going to be a parasite spoiler special so good. that doesn't have Bong Joon-ho on it, but it will have the four giggling idiots uh, discussing the film. And if this podcast has not already whetted your appetite for that, then I don't know what will. <laughs> and then following that, there'll be a spoiler special for Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn with the director, Kathy Yan. So or that's very, like to call exciting. It, bop. it is a bop. bop. It's a bop. And it's <laughs> the rest of it. Uh, but until we meet again, until a suspicious occasion, until then, it is goodbye from Amon Warman. Peace. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to drop a needle. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.